The following program may contain explicit language. It's Thursday, July 2nd, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The great Carl Reiner died yesterday, 98. He was a comedy giant in different ways. He was an essential part of the writing staff and cast of Your Show of Shows, which was the greatest assemblage of talent in the history of comedy writing. Though maybe that's like crediting the 27 Yankees without acknowledging that Turkey Stearns and Cool Papa Bell of the Negro Leagues could have slotted right into Murderer's Row. So of the people allowed to be comedy writers, that was the greatest assemblage of talent ever. His 2,000-year-old man, I'd say it's the greatest long-form two-hander in comedy history, and he created the Dick Van Dyke Show, which was one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Still is. When I was a kid, I would always hear references to the Dick Van Dyke show. It did go off the air five or six years before I was born. But crucially, and this is what I want to talk about, my reaction to hearing older people, especially people I respected comedically, was not to say, oh, that was before I was even born. It was to really want to seek it out. And that does kind of annoy me. Oh, that's from before I was born. Really? Did you get the polio vaccine? Because that's from before you were born too, Jenny McCarthy. Oh, bad specific example. Anyway, things that predate us, I think we should note, they often have value. They inform the things we like today. They aren't inherently worse because they're from before you. Two arguments are often said by the same people. We live in the worst timeline and ugh, that's from before I was born. More annoying is the opposite. The old guy saying, they don't make music like that anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe they shouldn't. A lot of those songs were crap. But, you know, Bruno Mars is probably making music a lot like that. Music evolution is good. Some of the old music's really bad. Yesterday, I was checking out Queen on iTunes, and they have this uh, list of influences, and some made sense. And then there was George Formby. I had never heard of George Fornby. He played the banjo ukulele, or maybe the ukulele banjo, maybe both, in English music halls in the 20s and 30s. Fornby was dubbed the beloved imbecile by pundits. The write-up let me know. Wow. Here now a taste of the beloved imbecile, George Fornby. Now I go in the cleaning to earn an honest bob. For a nosy parker, it's an interesting job. Now it's a job that just suits me. A window cleaner you would be if you can see what I can see when I'm cleaning windows. That was before I was born, and it is also terrible. But not because it was before I was born, and it is good to know that it influenced Freddie Mercury. All for the good, I suppose. I will, by the way, spare you George Formby's Chinese laundry song. Not that woke, not particularly woke. I did seek out Formby because I am not put off by, I am not antagonistic to that which came before I was born or that which I am unfamiliar with. I've always, by the way, thought a similar thing about using words in a report or on this show, which may be too esoteric for some in the audience. I don't want to do it too often, but I remember haggling with editors. Do you really want to say that? Do you want to say recondite? Don't you want to just tone it down to esoteric? No, maybe I want to say recondite because as a reader, when I encounter a word I don't know, I'm usually delighted. I get to learn a new word. I guess some people are so put off by this that they shut the radio off or throw the newspaper down in disgust. 
Never understood that. But I also think, and I have been thinking about the whole phenomenon of that was before I was born. And one of the reasons why I hear it more and more is that increasingly, a lot of things are before the people I'm talking to were born. I have almost 25 years on fully-fledged adults, even allowing for adult inflation. And I know that some things that I revere are just not going to play. Like Fletch seemed funny to us. Will never seem funny to anyone in their 20s. I'm not sure why it won't. Or MASH, TV show MASH, will never be binge-watched for pleasure. I mention those because they were considered good, even in MASH's case, great within its genre. I don't think they play to younger people. And they're not the Beverly Hillbillies of quality, quote-unquote, television. But here's the other thing that I think is going on. When I was younger and I heard, say, Dennis Miller talk about Rob Petrie tripping over the ottoman in the old Dick Van Dyke show, or Dana Gould mentioned Mr. Bombay and Bewitched, I'd get intrigued. I'd want to search it out. But I think part of the reason why is that it was from a universe of media that was so much smaller, so much more manageable. You can grasp, it seemed like, and maybe it was true that you could grasp almost everything that came before you if you were born in the early 1970s. I mean, I was born basically 15 years after rock and roll was invented. So I could catch up on most everything of rock and roll. In fact, there's like two stations in New York City that I could listen to and I'd get most of rock and roll. Movies went back earlier, but there were only so many releases a year. And TV channels, three, three of them. And a lot of them were the Beverly Hillbillies, so you didn't really have to pay attention. The body of work, as I'm saying, was manageable. Now, good luck. In any art form, music, TV, movies, there's more content in any one art form than there used to be in all the art forms combined. Let's look at manga. Do you know how much manga there is out there? We had Hannah, we had Barbara, we had some Looney Tunes and Disney. You could fit it all in a single thumb drive. It's overwhelming, and therefore I think it's anxiety-inducing to ponder all the material of the past. So it's a self-defense move to say, that's from before I was born. I have tried to educate my own kids on the arts, but it is hard. You could expect them to know the Beatles and maybe the Rolling Stones, but good luck on the Stone Roses, Stone Temple Pilots, Joss Stone, Queens of the Stone Age, and Sly the Family Stone. So what I'm saying is, Carl Reiner, you will be missed and you will be remembered. You lived long enough to greatly influence the greatest comedy that any generation could know. You were not to be too grandiose. You were something of, dare I say, the George Formby of saying things that were actually funny unaccompanied by a banjo ukulele or possibly a ukulele banjo. On the show today, a deep dive into a landlocked state. It is West Virginia, all things West Virginia. Let's do it. What do you say? But first... John McWhorter is the host of Lexicon Valley. He is a professor at Columbia University, where he teaches linguistics, American studies, philosophy, and music history. You can apparently major in McWhorter, and I think that might be considered a dual major. He joins us once more to talk about some of the words and phrases at the center of our discourse and our discontent right now. Yesterday, I talked to Lexicon Valley's John McWhorter about the definitions of racism and white supremacy. Today, I want to start with the most dominant rallying cry slash funding slash, which is defund the police. 
So I will admit, defund the police gives me pause as a phrase because I'm so silly as to conjure the actual definition of the word defund, which is to take funding away. This leads to a debate with people who say, no, 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 no. Defund means decrease funding, to which I say, no, decrease means decrease. Defund means defund. Luckily, I have here John McWhorter, who I shall now ask, who has the better side of this argument? Well, you know, it's tough because, of course, defund is supposed to mean what it means. But then on the other hand, as a linguist, my mantra is always that the meaning of words always changes. And to say defund the police is pragmatic in that there's a drama in it. You have a lot of people who are paying attention to a lot of things to say defund the police basically, you know, kind of pricks up people's ears. But then, of course, most of us weren't aware that you could say defund to mean give less money to. The problem is simply that to say decrease the amount of money given to the police, it doesn't fit on a sign, it doesn't sound as good, it doesn't stick in the mind. And so it's one of those things. Defund is challenging in that people are going to hear it as meaning don't give the police any money and just you know start again, which is what some few people mean. But the problem is figuring out whether a person means that or something more moderate will always take up space that could have been taken up with more substantial discussions. And it kind of throws red meat to the hard right who will enjoy trying to make everybody who is left of them, including the center, seem like they're idiots. And so that's a, that's a, that's a problem. But I completely understand why people might want to nudge the meaning of defund to to have what we might call a a scalar meaning, as we say. It's a continuum. Because defund is dramatic, and then you can say afterward that you didn't mean no money at all. Language is hard and in that way. I would just say, is the pre, does the prefix D often work that way, in a scalar way? It can. For example, with decrease, we don't use the word crease in that way. But yeah, you can have D meaning scalar as opposed to absolute. So you're allowed. You feel like you can fudge with it because it's within the realm of possibility of how words' meanings change. In this case, though, it's politically also potentially awkward. And I can't say that, therefore, it shouldn't be used that way, for one thing, because it's going to be, whether I say anything or not. And it is the way language changes, and it ends up muddying discussion. Language very often doesn't work well. That's always been the case. Well, I think this is a case where the people who are brandishing it know how it works, and it is to maximize punchiness. But it is also, I think, to purposefully inject some ambiguity. So some portions of the coalition that are saying defund the police will lecture me specifically. No, no, no. Why are you being so obtuse? It doesn't mean totally defund. But then other portions of that coalition will write op-eds in the New York Times that says, yes, by defund, we mean abolish the police. And among my complaints with the language is that it's not working as language should, which is that when you have, and, and then you could tell me if this is how language should work. But when you have a shared language, it's meant to express a shared belief or a shared mindset. So we're back to our college dorm saying is my red, your purple. But what is the point of a slogan? I understand the point of a slogan to be punchy and to put on a sign and to be maybe shocking and to also play with the Overton window. But if members of the coalition are taking totally different things from that word, I think that that could be a problem in the long term. You know, I think there are two things going on. And one of them is that we're in a moment where the hard left's position, the hard left's music is considered paramount by many people, even if it's not their music. The idea is that we are supposed to be listening to these extremely revolutionary and sometimes even unreasoning 
kinds of proposals. That's our mood right now. So the idea might be, with everybody left of center, that even if defund is rather extreme, we have to pay lip service to the idea that one might take that perspective and then have a more moderate conversation afterward. We are, frankly, in my view is that there's a certain genuflection to the hard left going on these days. But then also, language is supposed to be about communication. It, it emerged for that. Language did not emerge in order for people to be able to sit and think by themselves. It, it was supposed to be about exchange and doing constructive things on the basis of the exchange. But as language evolves, it can also be used for, and this ties into what you're saying, deliberate ambiguity in that, for example, think about the word date, as in they dated. Can Think about what that means or doesn't mean. Dating is a really obscure term. Imagine explaining what date means to a child. And the first thing that you think of is two people who don't know each other well who are going to go out to the movies. But that's very 1951. Date can mean nowadays something that you only did online. They dated can mean that they had a sexual relationship for two or three or even five years, depending on how you want to put it. Dating is a really obscure concept, and yet we keep it. I kind of think sometimes we ought to throw it away, but the thing is, it allows for a certain discretion. If you don't want to talk about how far you went with someone, if you don't want to talk about how intimate it was emotionally, well, they dated. And notice how it's used in the news as well. That can mean any number of things. So there are words like that that we don't seem to mind. And in politics, it ends up being that way too. So defund is kind of coy in a way, definitely. Yeah. And maybe that's the way they like it. Do you think defund the police, some of the frisson of excitement comes from that it evokes, but but for the first syllable, it's very close to fuck the police? <laughs> um, not necessarily. It's, it sounds kind of like that word. I think the D is actually quite dramatic. It just sounds like some kind of negation. You decrease, you defund, you demote, you get that damn thing down to the ground. That's what I think the D is partly. The F is probably handy. But, you know, there's, I think there's a bit of all of us on all parts of the political spectrum that finds that revolutionary perspective, at least on some level, kind of sexy. Even if you've decided that you don't like it, there's the drama. You know, it's just like little kids breaking things. There's some of that in all of us. We're going to break shit. And so that idea of D is effective in that way. And I'm not remotely trying to imply that anybody on the hard left is an infant. But in this case, I think defund, it sounds like you're taking a silverware drawer and throwing it down the steps. And you listen to all that noise and you see all that mess. Defund it. That's part of it, I think. So do you have any predictions? I sprinkled throughout our conversation were a couple, but do you have any predictions on where some of these terms might be going, terms that exist now, or terms that might be newly invented to re-describe the phenomenon we're always and constantly grappling with? Yeah, I think that um, it'll be interesting to listen to this in five or six years. Defund is going to stay exactly where it is. I don't think that that's going to spread because it really does starkly impede constructive dialogue. And I'm not sure how many other institutions that's going to extend to. That one's going to stick to the police. And as such, it's like Occupy. You know, for a while, some people were speculating that Occupy was going to end up 
primarily referring to, or at least half the time referring to, taking over offices and you know, these protests and that whole ideology. That didn't happen, really. I think that you know the Occupy movement is something that happened. I think it was a good thing, but it didn't really change our sense of the meaning of the word. There were some puns like Rockupy with rock music, etc., but it came and it went. Defund, I think, is going to be one of those things. But with racism, I think that definitely it's going to be used ever more in this this Kendian slash sociology oriented way. And I think white supremacy is going to be used ever more because it gets the room going more easily. And in about 20 years, there's going to have to be something else. And it'd be interesting to think of what the next term for societal racism slash white supremacy will be. But white supremacy, like everything, will lose its punch. People have to think about, you know, a sign you'll see on a building in a picture, you know, Institute for Cripples. And then cripples becomes the handicapped. The handicapped become the disabled. I don't know what disabled, differently abled or something. Terms turn over and turn over. White supremacy will be one of those. I like when it turns into a George Carlin routine, as, as it just did right there for a second. A <laughs> um, couple things. I, I know you're fascinated by woke. It still has the connotation of insult and that you're not taking it seriously. Do you know, is there a term that can express that idea, the idea embodied in, you know, something like social justice activism? Maybe it's a long term that conveys what you and I mean by woke, but won't put the 28-year-old... Um, who is very into correctly sourcing their coffee, won't put them on edge when I say it, won't make their teeth grind. Yeah, that's really interesting in that woke is already over. Woke is a joke. And that really happened within about five years. It's at the point that you you can barely use it outside of quotation marks. And the times really are ripe for there to be some other term to come up and, you know, live because of social media pushing these things faster, live for about five years. You know, social justice warrior is something more aimed at them than something that they would use to describe themselves. Oh, yeah. I would never say warrior. I might say activist. Right. There's going to have to be some new term. Advocate. And, you know, I don't You know, I'm a man with children who sits in chairs. I'm not out enough to know. I wonder (laughs) among themselves whether they're beginning to refer to their ideology as something. Because it couldn't be woke. They, They know that that term is now used in derision. And so, yeah, something, let's try this, something must be coming at this point, and I'd be interested to know what it was. Politically correct used to be used with a straight face. I'm just old enough to remember that. And then it became your PC, ha ha ha. Woke has had the same trajectory, just faster. I wonder what the next thing will be. There will be something. And another one that I wonder about is identity politics, speaking of Mark Lilla, because there is, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just this catch-all phrase like um, elitism that doesn't really mean anything, but I think it does, it's trying to put its finger on a phenomena that I think 90% of fair-minded people can have 90% agreement on, let's say, so that's only 81% agreement, but it seems verboten to use that among the people who may be driven by identity politics. And we all know the answers. How dare you call my politics identity politics? You know, Trump supporters are the ultimate identity politics, or all politics are identity politics. This constant denial of the premise. Yet language exists to try to express an idea. I understand the idea. Can we have a phrase for it? Yeah, we 
we need that because, you know, identity politics. Fifty years ago, you said that with a straight face. I don't think Bella Abzug thought of identity politics as a problem. But there are people who didn't like Bella Abzug's politics and other people on the left. And next thing you know, identity politics sounds cynical. It sounds like you're not playing the game properly. Identity politics, you're politicking. And so you need a new term. I would say identity politics is pretty much dead and so, yes, there needs to be a term for what people who are engaging in identity politics for perfectly neutral reasons were doing. And I think that's what social justice has become. You know, social justice is a very large term. And technically, you know, Trump supporters are you know, seeking what they think of as social justice. But we use it in a very narrow way to imply the goals that people left on the left side want. And that's because identity politics got worn out. So now we talk about social justice. Imagine being a Martian and listening to people say social justice, and you know what social means, you know what justice means, but then you're wondering why it only seems to be said by people with a certain kind of politics. It's because it's the identity politics people who needed a new way of referring to themselves that didn't elicit giggles. Right. Although, you know, maybe Martians would understand identity politics. Oh, you mean the people from the craters versus the people from the peaks? Yeah, I get it. I totally <laughs> exactly. get it. John McWhorter, always a pleasure. John McWhorter hosts Lexicon Valley at Slate, and he writes interesting things for The Atlantic, Quillette, other publications. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, Mike. Always happy to be here. And now the spiel. In West Virginia news, yes, West Virginia Take me home, country roads, to the place I knew before. I have actually spent more time in West Virginia than I have, I would estimate, 40 other states. And that includes North Dakota and Idaho, combined zero minutes in each. But a few weeks ago, I mentioned that the governor of West Virginia was perhaps the one executive in America who was worse than Trump. Upon reflection, that was totally unfair. Jim Justice is a lot of things, but head of an ignorant death cult that would rather own the libs than actually live, Jim Justice is not that. Here was Governor Justice of West Virginia today. I want everyone to know that I am very, very seriously considering that at the beginning of next week, we may very well have to go to mandatory masks in buildings, you know, other than your homes. You go out and you go into a building, you need to probably wear your mask. We tell you you need to but we may have to go to mandatory mask and we're watching it and we're watching it with all in us. As the governor noted, West Virginia has only had 93 deaths from coronavirus. But to keep it that way, he exhorted, let's be vigilant. And let's remember, West Virginia has the oldest population in America and by many measures, the least healthy. He acknowledged that. West Virginia also has a healthy dose of controversy over Confederate statues which is a little odd when you consider that the reason there is a West Virginia is that the state separated from the Confederacy because it wanted to stay in the Union and fight for the Union against the Confederacy. Still, as WCHS-TV Channel 8 reports, Stonewall Jackson was born in what's now West Virginia, and there he still stands. The monument to Confederate General Stonewall Jackson dominates the courthouse plaza in Clarksburg. This north central West Virginia city that once built itself as too far south to be Yankee and too far north to be rebel may have to pick one. Uh, wasn't one picked for them when the South lost? Also, when West Virginia broke off because they didn't want to be in the South? 
But anyway, the Clarksburg commissioners opposed taking down the statue by a two to one margin. Perhaps it's because that Clarksburg is a city that's 93% white in a county that's 96% white in a state that's 94% white. So removing this famous, I would argue, infamous son isn't central to the town in north central West Virginia. Stonewall Jackson, by the way, was said to believe that eating pepper caused his left leg to ache. He was also shot to death by his own men. This was a general revered for his brilliance and guile. So there he stays in Clarksburg. But that doesn't mean no Confederate monuments anywhere in the state were taken down because in Charleston, they did remove a monument to the Confederacy as West Virginia Public Radio reports. Rifleman Memorial still stands at Ruffner Park in downtown Charleston, but a bronze plaque that covers most of its face is now gone. That plaque listed the names of local men who fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Now, just a word about the memorial that stands, as, as you heard her say. It stands, but the plaque is gone. The plaque was the memorial. The rest of the still standing memorial, it's a stone bench and a stone edifice exactly the size of a plaque. I think we should put up a plaque to contextualize the lack of a plaque or the presence of a blank concrete slab, however you look at it. Actually, I don't think that. West Virginia Public Radio has more on the story. Among the names is William Armstead, a black cook who was, quote, faithful during the war. It uses a once commonplace but offensive term to describe him. That reference is one of the reasons the city removed the face of the monument. Whoa, the mind reels at what that commonplace but offensive term could be. But it's not the one you're thinking of. It's probably not even the other one. It's what the C in NAACP stands for, which is an offensive term, as is noting that this slave was pleased to serve the South. So it's gone. It is gone. Charleston, by the way, 78% white, only 78% white. You can say that in West Virginia, only 78% white. West Virginia, really an interesting state. If every state were West Virginia, America would be more like uh, an unoceaned Australia, or maybe more like uh, the United States, but in 1972. Another famous West Virginia died a couple days ago. His name was Jack Whitaker. Whitaker won $314 million in the Powerball lottery, and he said... That ruined his life. Now, to be fair, Whitaker settled for a one-time payment of $113 million. So really, you can see that is a life-ruining sum. I mean, 314, ridiculous, but 113, that doesn't go far. Along the way, he blew hundreds of thousands of dollars on liquor, on strip clubs, and on gifts. Now, of course, there's no way to tell if he hadn't won if he would have blown all that money, but maybe he still would have, right? Not hundreds of thousands, but thousands on slightly lower quality liquor stripper and gifts. And I shall now take a moment to acknowledge there's no standard agreement on what constitutes a quality stripper or a low quality stripper. I do not want to wade into that morass. Among the gifts he gave was to his granddaughter, who was 17, as he explained on 2020. You bought her a number of cars, didn't you? Yes. How many? Four. So it's a 17-year-old with four cars. Again, was that altogether sensible? She can only drive one at a time. To a young kid, cars mean a lot. And I'm very proud that she had four cars. That is impeccable logic. Though I think it's to a kid, a car means a lot. A car, singular. Brandy's story turned tragic. She became addicted to drugs. She died. Brandy's mother, which is to say Whitaker's daughter, died. His son developed a drug problem. And the standard explanation, and he, he believed in it, was that the lottery was a curse. He couldn't handle the money. He was an 
unsophisticate who was overwhelmed by his newfound wealth. I mean, studies show lottery winners are less happy than the average citizen. Only here's the thing. Lots of people in West Virginia became addicted to drugs in the last few years. Also, those studies about lottery winners doing worse than the rest of us, they're untrue. One stat you hear, 70% of lottery winners eventually declare bankruptcy. It's been repeated so often that the organization credited with the statistic, the National Endowment for Financial Education, issued a statement a couple years ago reading, over the past couple of years, several news organizations have attributed a statistic to the NEFE stating that 70% of lottery winners end up bankrupt. The statistic is not backed by research from NEFE, nor can it be confirmed by this organization. Frequent reporting without validation has allowed this quote-unquote stat to live in perpetuity. It seems we have a need to believe that story. We, we the non-winners, because it comforts us. It seems we hold Jack Whitaker up as a cautionary tale by not acknowledging the fact that, you ready? The guy was a multimillionaire before he ever won the Powerball. He had a very successful construction company. Yes, he made really poor choices afterwards. And yes, there was a lot of public scrutiny that came with that, and he did not handle his fortune well. But the story of the ill-fated lottery winner, I think it does hit our pleasure centers, and not the pleasure centers that we should be most proud of. And I think it hits them a little too neatly. The stories that perpetuate our narratives, they're so often not true. Kind of grappling with that as a country now. I mean, Stonewall Jackson was not a hero of a lost cause. And I bet, you know what? I bet he never really worried that much about Pepper. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing's true and that we should tear it all down. But I do find when you hear that just-so story that lines up perfectly with what you believe and flatters your beliefs, be that story from Paul Harvey or a Sunday sermon or a 2020 story, be suspicious. And be suspicious of a narrative that it's all a lie, that every story from history is nothing more than a myth. So that's my advice. Also, my advice... Visit West Virginia, especially Wheeling in the springtime. Don't play the Powerball. Do wear a mask. And if you must eat pepper, make sure to raise your right hand to best balance out your bodily humors. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces The Gist. She once left $50,000 on the bar of the Pink Pony Lounge. Quote, I swallowed my bubble gum, recalls general manager Michael Dunn. He says, flashing all that cash, quote, was just a stupid gesture. There are people in this world who'll knock you in the head for $5. My worst nightmare was waking up in the morning and reading in the paper that Margaret Kelly got rolled at the pink pony. I said, please put the money away. Don't do that again. Daniel Schrader is the Gist's producer who's never been to North Central West Virginia or Southeast North Dakota, but did take classes at Northwestern's East Campus in South Bend. The Gist. We shall be off tomorrow. See you on the 6th of July. And until then, we're in touch, so you be in touch. Because that was the sign-off of the late Hugh Downs. It never really made sense to me. In a pre-internet era, was he actually soliciting postal mail? I don't know. Maybe it had a different meaning. I do hate it when a sign-off is obscure. Okay, then. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.